Chris DeSantis gave one of the best talks, most memorable talks that I've attended in the last five years. He's an expert in organizational behavior. And what that leads to is this wonderful understanding of just how different each generation is. Baby boomers, Gen X, millennials, Gen Z, they're so different. That's why his book is so well titled, Why I Find You Irritating. Each generation has a unique set of values and beliefs and principles that are almost hardwired or hard-coded from age six to about age 12. We watch our parents and how they grow up forms us for the rest of our lives. And while one generation may end up ultra-independent, their children can end up very different as the pendulum swings from one side to the other. Why does one generation think another one is so needy? And another generation looks at a group and says, well, there's no loyalty there. How does this impact who we end up marrying? And what led to such massive different generational beliefs and values? Like no one else, Chris DeSantis is able to explain each generation from a macro perspective and help us understand why each generation believes what it believes. If we can start understanding our own generation and all the other generations that we interact with on a daily basis, it can really lead to a much greater sense of community and connection. Let's understand how baby boomers, Gen Xers, millennials, Gen Z, how they think. Maybe that way we can empathize or sympathize with them in the workplace, in our families, and in our daily lives that much better. I think you'll find what Chris DeSantis, author of Why I Find You Irritating, fascinating. I'm Wes Moss. The prevailing thought in America is that you'll never have enough money and it's almost impossible to retire early. Actually, I think the opposite is true. For more than 20 years, I've been researching, studying, and advising American families, including those who started late, on how to retire sooner and happier. So my mission with the Retire Sooner podcast is to help a million people retire earlier while enjoying the adventure along the way. I'd love for you to be one of them. Let's get started. Chris DeSantis, this is, again, I've been doing a lot of radio today, a lot of podcasts today. But I'm most excited about talking to you because I already know you, uh, at least a little bit, because you had, I've done client events over the last, every year for the last, let's call it here, uh, for 15 some years. And it's hard to get, I've been the speaker a couple of times and then that gets boring. And we've had a variety of different disciplines to come in. You know, I would, some have been amazing. Some have been rough. We had a elder care attorney that came in and spoke to our clients. And it was like, it was so depressing by the end. Like people were, <laughs> they're hanging their heads <laughs> low after they look. And then, and we had a client event with you where we had a ton of people. This is before, right before COVID back into, I think it was 2019. We had a lot of, we had a couple hundred people there and you gave one of the most interesting talks about one of the most interesting subjects with demographics and generations and what the different generations think about each other, what millennials think of boomers and boomers think of Gen X. And I don't know if it's such an amazingly interesting topic and everybody relates to it so much because your talk touched on all the different generations. So grandparents and parents and even some kids in our audience were like, oh wait, that's me. Oh no, wait, that's mom. That's dad. Oh, that's grandpa. So I know that you've got this great introspection but maybe I'm just going to first, Chris, say, well, first of all, thanks for being on. Yeah, yeah, no, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And your book title, Why I, why I Find, <laughs> this may, literally made me laugh, Why I Find You Irritating. <laughs> I submitted 37 titles to the publisher, and this is the one they thought really rang true, as it were. So I went with it. They were right, man. That is awesome. What what was your first pick? Or did you kind of let them? Do you no, kind of let I them had a first pick. pick and I was so far off base. I, I called it B to Z, boomers to Zoomers. And I thought that would be a, a play on B to B. And, and so, but, and then uh, as I, of course, reflected on it, that, that appealed to sort of my sensibility, but I don't think it would have resonated with anybody. It, w- it wouldn't have drawn the eye, as it were. 
That's correct. Your publisher is totally correct in, yeah. in blocking that title. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. Yes, I'm grateful. Because, because B2Z, yeah, it's kind of, that's the thing. It's like we think like, oh, I'm in the generation of B2B and B2C and oh, B2Z sounds good. And boomers, is, boomers to Generation Z, it's like, if it has to take any more than a nanosecond to, for people to get it, right. they don't necessarily get it. So no. you guys, you picked the right one. We all get that. Why? <laughs> I find you irritating. Yes. Really a study in different generations and what we think of each other. And in the business that we're in, which is helping people really have a good plan for long-term retirement and really for life and legacy, Yes, you really need to understand all the different generations. Oh, absolutely. And that's what I want to start with is that at our event back in 19, you really resonated around describing different generations. And I'm going to read a two-second tidbit from your website that's pretty interesting. I want to ask you about it. You're a humanist hmm. and an optimist, and it sounds like you don't believe in high potential versus low potential human beings, but rather in the right circumstances with the right support, resources, and knowledge, everyone is capable of greatness or great things. So let's start there. What is a humanist, by the way? Well, a humanist just believes in humanity above all else. And, and I believe in the human being as capable as they can be, or I, I would say be prepared to be. And I think that's crucial to this is that it's not that, um, a high potential person uh, or a low potential person per se, it's about how we believe in them and how, what resources do we allocate to help them achieve that. Now, as my point on greatness, just to elaborate really quickly is, I don't think we can be all great at all things, but I think any of us can be great at something. And that's my hope is how do we find the something? It's in the book as well. I call it lopsidedness in the book. So lopsidedness, is saying that you're really good at something, but not so good at something else? Well, it means you need to be good enough. You see, uh, let me go back to you, because I, I had mentioned this offline. Two things I wanted to say that I would like to say to everyone. That presentation I made in 2019, I recall, yes, it was a really nice crowd, but it was made to be a nice crowd for uh, that you did your homework. You're one of the few people that went up there and talked about generational differences from a place of homework, meaning you actually did something about it as opposed to just commenting on it. So you knew the sort of the gradients of this, you knew who this audience was and how this might impact it, and you set me up perfectly. The second piece was I was surrounded by uh, your colleagues who were uh, making this the easiest event possible. And they were really facilitating everyone's mood because they were all in a good mood, or they at least appeared to be. <laughs> now, having said that, going to my point about lopsidedness, I don't think all of your colleagues are the same as you. I think you bring something special to the table, and I believe they each bring something special to the table if allowed to do so. And I think the best teams are complementary to each other as opposed to competitive. And so I don't want a room full of A players per se, because now they're just competing to be who's the supreme A. I want you to be uh, B players with an A trait. And I'd like those traits to be complementary so we are all in in. I will say we are all together collaborating as opposed to competing because I think that's the future. I think the future is is involves teams and and team sports, as it were, in terms of this is the recognition that we can each bring something. We can't all be the quarterback. Exactly. I, and I love that thought. It's almost as though it's a specialization of labor has gone to a new level, which is specialization of talent within a team and an organization. And is that part of I'm always interested in. I read somewhere, I want to say, didn't you do organizational behavior? or Is that organizational psychology that you studied? I, it's organizational behavior was the degree, right? It's, it's a degree in that. And I, I, look at, I look at the organization in terms of how does it behave and on the components, which are the people, uh, and what is the culture of that and how are they influenced and what behaviors do they engage in? What's interesting about that is I try not to get into people's heads because that's private space, but I can certainly comment on a behavior. And saying, okay, what is this behavior? And then what might drive that behavior or change it? Well, let's go into understanding generations. I think this is, we're also fascinated yeah. by it. And I've written about it and I've talked about generations on radio, a variety of different radio shows. Or, And I always have to go back and look it up because it's complicated and it's not always, it feels as though there's different opinions on the different generations. I mean, one time I'll read, it's from yeah. this 
date to this date, and then I'll read another one that's a different. But I really like maybe the way you, what are your main categories of, of whoever? So we probably have people from 20 to 80 listening today, 20 to 90. Right. And I, I use the Pew Research number because they do a lot of research in this category anyway. And you're right. Every author seems to have some, some uh, space. So traditionalists, I think I use from the years uh, 1922 to about 1943. Those are the birth years. And then um, I use uh, boomers after that from 44 to 64. Then I use Gen X from about 65 to about 81. And then I go with millennials from 82 to 96. And then Gen Z, 96 to 2012. And then after Gen Z, the placeholder name is Gen Alpha. Since we don't have a name for them, we're starting the alphabet again. And they go from 2012 on. Okay. And so, and again, these are constructs. I don't want the listener to think that if you're born within that, you are that. You are not. You are just happen to be labeled that. And that is independent of your identity. Okay, so the, here it is. So traditionalists is that really the 20s to 1943 birth years, and you call the traditionalists. Yes. Boomers, the one that gets all the press, or most, well, right. maybe not. I think millennials have competed for that. Boomers, 1944 to 64. Then you've got Correct. Gen X, 65 to 81. That's where I land. I like being yes. Gen X. Nobody, most, nobody ever talks about You're the it. most interesting of them, right? Nobody yeah. knows you. Nobody ever talks about the Gen Xers. Millennials, everybody talks about 82 to 96. Gen Z, these are still kids, 96 to 12, and then Generation Alpha as in placeholder. What right. are those are the children. Yeah, these are our little kids. These are our little guys. Mm -hmm. uh, what about, there's some other, the traditionalists, don't they, we also call that the great generation. What's another name for that? Or the yeah, they, what, they what? use that. Wasn't that from a, what's his name, the... Um, Oh, I can't think of it. the newscaster came out with the last great generation. Tom, Bur yeah, Tom Burkhoff. Uh, it, was, it was actually, they were referencing whoever fought in World War II. So that would have been, World War II happened in the 30s. So to be in that war, you would have been born in as a traditionalist or touch upon just, just, uh, the, just before that. So the last great generation. What's interesting about the traditionalists, they, they had the best opportunity. I mean, after the war, they surfed through the next 30 years of plenty. They surfed into retirement and they never experienced an economic downturn. That was probably the best position generation of all of them, of all of the ones I've mentioned. Because the traditionalists retired then, what do you call retirement? So if you're born in 1940, you go out 60 years. So you went to Oh, here you go. So this says, so if you're born in the early 20s, right, then you at age 60, you retire in like 1980. And it's like clean sailing because the market exactly. did awesome for all the 80s, all the 90s. If you were born in 1930, you retired in 1990, and then you still had this massive stock market run. Uh, right. And it was a really, really plentiful, bountiful retirement if you were an investor. That's exactly but right. But maybe let's start with this. Let, let's talk about the different beliefs and the values and the priorities of understanding these different generations. What do? Sure. And obviously, we think of this from a, a money perspective, but it doesn't just ha it doesn't have to be just about how we think about money. It can be anything. But what are the values and beliefs for the? For, let's start with traditionalists, and then we'll go to boomers, and then Gen X, etc. Well, it's yes. Now. Uh, when I talk about these things, again, I should say a few things before we even talk about it is I'm clearly generalizing. I'm really talking about the middle class and, and normative experiences. So when you hear the storyline here, you hear a normative experience about somebody who was born in the United States, who lived in the middle class and had experiences that were coincidental to their peer group. That is who we are when we're talking about this. Normative. But if you, are, if you are first generation US, if you were not born here, um, if, you came, if you're outside of the middle class and you were very rich or very poor, you did not have the touch points that most of us had. And so you will not necessarily relate. So also, and I'll tell you another anecdotal one, if your parents were a lot older or younger uh, than the peer group you hung around with, Again, you might have had different storylines. So the point being here is that when you hear this, you should hear the story and what the story fits your own history. That's probably where you fit mentally, but you are not seen mentally, you are seen physically. Mm -hmm. 
And so you are seen in the age you are rather than your, I will say, cognitive choices that you're making. So hopefully that makes sense when we say this It does. So again, normative, we're going to kind of go through these different generations and how they believe, where they feel, their priorities. It, again, uh, middle class, U.S., but if you immigrated here or you're, or you're from another country or your parents were, uh, you know, much older or younger, that can obviously change us a little bit. Exactly. All of those things influence us. That's why a lot of first immig- first year, um, or excuse me, first generation young people don't always align with their generational de- descriptions because the storylines they hear are more classic in the sense that, oh, if you strive hard, you will achieve here, all of the things. You know, they, they believe the aspirational view, but not everyone gets the aspirational message. So it, well, it, it Okay, is, let's it start is, with the traditionalists then. Yes, the traditionalists make an interesting crowd. Remember now, they were raised, uh, they came of age, again, think about this from the younger lens, when you're six or eight years old, so in the 20s. These are kids who were raised in the 20s and the 30s. And so what did they see around them? The Depression. So the Depression was one of those, I will call socioeconomic moments, uh, a cultural catalyst is how I describe it in the book, is that these moments that stay with us, and you know this from your own grandparents or my own grandparents, about how they would save everything. And so scarcity was always in the back of their mind. It made them great savers, for one thing. It made them very good. The other thing is they were much more aligned because messaging was such that we, we didn't have all of these choices of messages. You had the radio and you had, and so on the radio, you listened to certain programs and everyone heard those programs. So in that sense, we had more of an alignment nationally in terms of our interpretation of things. And the government was more aligned in that as well. We did, we believe we were quite more, we were a lot more hierarchical in our acceptance of the government. So mm. in that sense, that's the other thing. We play to the hierarchy, which made the transition to World War II easier because we had to become a, a, a high production economy, a, a command and control economy. And by the way, that worked. It was an existential threat. It worked. So they became sort of part and parcel to believing in this hierarchy and respect for authority. So if you have those pieces in mind, this notion of saving, this notion of respect, I also think uh, are culturally we were more rural than we were urban. So Mm. younger people were adults sooner. And when I say adults, they had to make a contribution to the family. I would... I would bet a number of the traditionalists who are listening to me right now were working in their in their in their maybe even their preteen years because yeah, they had to make 10. a contribution. Yeah. yeah. Age 10 to 12, right. So this is part of who they are. Now, I bring that up because when they look at the young today, they see what are you doing? Why are you doing why aren't you more engaged in society? Why aren't you getting a job? All of the things they judge from the lens of where they were, not from the circumstances of where the young are. Wow, that's so true. And so yeah. they're their lens is very different. Now, I respect their lens because they they did build this. They built. They are the builders of what we sort of reside under. The problem is we've transitioned from a hierarchical to a, a, I will call the company man model to more of a transactional marketplace, meaning that we are transactional. Now, who started that? Is that boomers? Well, boomers were the last of what I will call the covenant generation. What we, we fell in, uh, the early boomers, that, remember now we go from about 44 to about 64. The early boomers sort of lived into the company man. That means if you worked for somewhere, you retired from there. The first wave of my generation was the, the first was able to retire through those fir- uh, firms. The, the latter wave, my age group, has learned that, wait a second, where are the retirements? They're starting to disappear. So we were living under the covenant and we still believe in it. In fact, we, you know, one of the things that I think boomers always complain about, why isn't anybody loyal anymore? Where are the loyal employees, right? And what <laughs> yeah. we used to do The boomer used to be was, look, I'd have a bad boss. I'd have this really bad boss. And I'd say, oh, my God, you're awful. And then I'd outweigh you. And then I'd have another bad boss. And then a third. And eventually, (laughs) I get to be the bad boss. You see what I'm saying? Because I'm going to be there long (laughs) enough to outweigh all of you. And so I will do that until I retire, as it were. Now, what happens today is when you moved away from the company model, the company man, the promise of employment, the promise that promise no longer, you Gen Xers, you saw the promise disappear. And there is no promise at all for the millennial or the Gen Z. 
So with their loyalty is, yes, they are loyal, but they are loyal to the individual to whom they report, not necessarily to the organization, because the organization has shown no loyalty to them. Versus the company. Hey, y'all, it's Mallory Boggs, the producer for the Retire Sooner podcast. From an investment standpoint, the world is changing. We've gone from no inflation to hyperinflation, zero interest rates to much higher interest rates. All of this changes the dynamics for stocks and bonds. So the question for you, are your retirement accounts ready for it? Have you adapted your investments for these major shifts? Do you know what kind of income your 401k account is going to pay you in retirement? If not, maybe it's time for a new perspective. The Retire Sooner team is here to help. If you're ready to talk, reach out to our team and we'll help you take a closer look at how you can generate income in retirement and protect yourself from inflation. We'd love to hear from you. Again, find us at westmoss.com. That's W-E-S-M-O-S-S dot com. All right, so let me start to recap this a little bit here. Traditionalists, culturally, I love the thought around more rural versus urban, which matters and respect for authority. I love the thought that we yes. were more aligned. Deferential. Deferential. And we were more aligned because we, we didn't have 72 channels. We had three, right? And well, really we had radio for a if, while. If we even had, yeah, we had radio. We had, and by the way, the entire family gathered around the radio. So again, but it made, they had the promise of employment and to some extent they were very loyal to staying at a company, right? And they respected authority. Yes. Boomers, maybe, on the other hand, when you say the covenant, what do you mean the covenant generation? What does that mean? The covenant was the inferred promise. If I work hard for you, if I jump through every hoop that you put me through, I will have a, a job here. I'll give you the, a perfect distinction. When I was uh, in my 20s, if they said to me, I'm going to have to move you from Chicago to New York, the only answer would have been, when do you need me there? Right. Now, if you, Wes, say that today to one of your employees and say, I'm going to move you from Atlanta to Philadelphia, they will say, let me check. Right. That will be the best answer you get. That is so true. And you, if you're a boomer, you will hear that as, whoa, you don't want this, do you? But what they're saying is, it's not that I don't want this. I have other people in my life I am also equally concerned about. You see, in the boomer model, the covenant was, look, I got to do this because that's what we got to do to get what we want at the end of this. And they're saying today is, I would like to do this if it works out for all concerned. Now, let, hold on. Is that, would, would that be a Gen Xer or really more of a millennial that would question that? I think a Gen X is on the residual sort of of this. So I think that they could go either way because I do think there's a proportion of your crowd that is 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 not very fond of authority and not necessarily as trusting of it and is a little more entrepreneurial in your spirit. And I think your entrepreneurism has been, um, I think both millennials and Gen Z have been inculcated in that individualistic spirit more and they all strive for some of that as well. So I think you have some of that. I think there's some of that. Remember now, a lot of you in the category of Gen X are promoted into organizations and promoted up through the organizations, not because of your pure Gen X characteristics, but because of the presence of characteristics that align with my own as a boomer. So we weed out the Gen Xers who are purely entrepreneurial. <laughs> to find ones that are going to have some, something like some semblance of a boomer where they're loyal to the company more, a little bit less entrepreneurial. Yes. You know, remember now, you had no economic uh, uptick. You're a product of scarcity. So one of the things that's really important to your generation well, explain was that. employability. So hold on. So again, Gen X years here are 1965 to 1981. We fast forward age 20, you end up kind of hitting the workforce in right after dot-com bust. Is that part of it? Well, yes, but think of it even before, yeah, before then. that. Go before then. As a in the awakening years, what you saw in the late, uh, this when they were in their, uh, I will call it eight to 10 or six to 10 years old, what we saw was the end of this uh, great compression. That's when uh, the downsizing, right sizing, stagflation, all of those things happen and these companies let go. By the way, the covenants ended. 
These companies that had guaranteed jobs for life started to say, well, we'll just get rid of this layer. We'll get rid of this layer. We'll get, I'll place this. And so these dads were coming home and they were typically dads saying, look, I gave them everything and this is what you get. So the message started to be, well, I don't know. I'm not sure I can trust there. And then on top of that, you have a gift. You knew technology in a way that uh, boomers who paid for it didn't know. And so you started the dot-com boom saying, okay, I can be a little bit more my own boss. So there were some, a lot of factors that I think fed your independence or the desire to be more independent. Again, so really you go back to when, when we're kids, what we see is how we're it's formed. The kids, yes. And you're saying if you're, yeah, you're born in 1970, companies at that point, we had high inflation, we had low growth, it was stagflation. Companies kind of let go of that. You can stay here for life. That's when companies became less loyal for life. And we, we Gen Xers grew up with that. And there was less of a trust that, oh, I'm just going to go to a company and stay forever. Exactly right. Made, made them maybe a more entrepreneurial, maybe a little bit. Like maybe I need to do my own thing. More independent. Well, keep that in mind too, that what you were called, you Gen Xers, Wes, you were the latchkey kids. And so a lot of your parents were either divorced because divorce really popped up, uh, were divorced. And so you were either single parents or two working parents. And so a lot of the times you were on your own. You're the most independent of any generation. You're the last kids in America, quite frankly, that have a private life. We didn't, we didn't know. And by the way, you would never share your life with me. You would, I, if I came home, you'd, I'd say, what did you do? You'd tell me nothing. Where'd you go? Nowhere. Who'd you see? Nobody. That's the, okay. You're talking about that's the Gen Xer is just more private. That's the Gen Xer. You are far more private. You, I, I've always said that there's a duality about your generation. When you meet a boomer, you meet the whole package. Yeah. When I meet you, I meet, a, I meet who you wish me to see. Mm. And only after a time do you reveal the whole package. And- Chris, you think that is because the Gen Xers grew up having to be more independent, I guess is what you're saying, because we, first yes, of all, I didn't that, realize divorce spiked so much during the period of time. What was that about? Oh my gosh, the, the divorces spike. In fact, divorce rates have dropped now because millennials are marrying and they're when they marry, they're marrying later and they're more selective in who they are dating. And, and even though they use technology to facilitate that date, but they are, they are very selective about who they will marry and they're marrying like to like. This is called assortative mating. They're marrying across all categories except one and assortative mating is uh, they're not stepping outside of their socioeconomic class. And so all of those factors come together. And so they're very serious about who they are will be with as their, as their partner in this and the partner in the most uh, literal sense. And so their divorce rates have gone down quite a bit. I did not. That's very interesting. Assortive mating. Assortative mating. Assortative it's mating. It's one of the challenges. And by the way, it's not their fault. You, you did this to them. You did this to them. Because you, as parents, when they were young, uh, you and, and boomer parents, uh, you, you vetted your, parent, your children's friends. You do vetting. You say, well, who are you going to meet? Who are you going to go play with? Well, I'd like to meet their parents. Let's get them together with us. And so what's happening is the parents who are in a certain social economic class are meeting parents in that same economic class. And then they're vetting each other's kids and say, okay, because you know the stories of your children. You know who they play with and who they get along with. And so you're saying, well, okay. So it's interesting. That vetting process has now continued into their own lives as adults. And to some extent, you think that is the product of, so the Gen Xers didn't have online dating. They were, they were more, were you saying they were more? Gen Xers are, uh, let, me, let me go back to their lives. If, you're ch if you have a lot of this independence and the, of the latchkey kid, as it were, a more independent sort of sensibility, I think upon reflection, and this is where I think it gets weird, upon reflection, I think a lot of Gen Xers felt that was a lonely time for me, even though it gave you so much freedom. But you would, as parents now, I think a lot of you are thinking, gosh, I wouldn't want my kid to be alone like that, sitting in a basement playing a, a video game alone. It doesn't have, I want to be involved with his life. My, my dad was working. My mom was working. Nobody was involved with my life. And now I don't want to do that to my kid. So what you're giving to them is what you didn't have. So now. There's a consequence to that. Now you've paid attention to them and they enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, uh, which isn't necessarily, I guess none of this is bad. This is just formative. No, there's no bad. It's just different. Yeah, it's just different. But we judge it through the lens of who we are. So the, we were more independent, so we were more, the Gen Xers, if you're listening, you were maybe more apt to say, look, I can marry anybody I want. They don't have to be within my same income demo. They don't have to be within my same right. assortative. Remember now, we weren't group. doing well economically when you came of age too. So your sort of your economic choices weren't as robust to begin with. And so and it wasn't a priority. It wasn't a priority, right. I feel like today's generations think more about what they're marrying from a socioeconomic standpoint in my generation. Well, they're worried. Yeah. They, they are reasonably worried. Because they all have more, uh, you didn't have the debt of college that they had in terms of the collective. There was not $1.5 trillion hanging over the Gen X heads. So there, there's that, you see. So there's, they have a different experience relative to us. It doesn't mean that your life wasn't hard or their life is easy or their life is hard and yours was, you know, it doesn't mean that. It just means it's different. Okay, so but the we millenn- do like to compare ourselves. So the millennials, they get a lot of press, 1982 to 1996. Yes. Oh my, yes. What did they grow up seeing? What was their what were the 8 6 to 10 year olds seeing? Yes, that's interesting too because their their events, if you think about their events, their their events were I they, they had a short window of about 10 years of economic uptick. Remember the dot-com boom, the first wave of them and all of that? There was, so there was this uh, abundance of wealth. And so they have, a, I, I would say there's an inherent optimism to them as well. They have also, I, I say this, is they were raised in the bubble of love. They had all the attention that the Gen Xer did not get. And so they are engaged in dialogue. They are, these are children of dialogue. And, and so in, in that sense, both the millennial and the Gen Z are always engaged in some negotiation with their parents growing up. And they are in the habit of this dialogue. And this is one of the probably the challenges of uh, being them. Because when they come into the workplace, they want to have a dialogue with you. And you are living in a world that is more hierarchical than egalitarian. And so when you say, I-, I need you to do this, they'll say, well, how about if I do it this way? And you're going, whoa, whoa, this wasn't a conversation I'm having. <laughs> but they assume it is because they're, that's their first assumption. So we, 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 you know, we slap them down for not knowing the rules. So the Gen Xers were independent and they, they were a little, they mm-hmm. were left more alone. So then inherently they paid more attention to their younger kids so the millennials grew up with the, I guess the heli- I guess we're the helicopter parent a little bit. Is that right? Well, if you think about it this way, boomer, boomer parents and millennial children are aligned, late boomer parents and millennial children, and then also Gen X and Gen Z, uh, uh, late millennials and Gen Z children. So, and you have certain overlapping behaviors. What's another interesting point is that today's parents, the parents of millennials and the parents of Gen Z, to some degree, as parents have to conform. You see, your parents didn't conform. They have, you have a certain pressure to supply what other parents have. If you don't have a safety seat in the back car, you're not a good parent. Now, I'll tell you, in my worldview, if I had said as a, as a small boomer kid, if I had said, or even you said as a child, hey, Johnny down the street has a really nice bike. My parents would not have said, well, we should get a bike just like Johnny's. My parents said, why don't you go live with Johnny's parents? Because you don't, you know, we're, you get what you get. So in that sense, you are now under sort of a, an assumed pressure to conform. Does that make sense? Because of this whole assortment yeah. of mating and like to like and everyone should be like everybody else. It's hard to be a parent today. It is. Thank you for saying that because it is hard to be a parent today. It so is. what else? It is. So the millennials grew up. Uh, the millennial at work would say, the, the Gen Xer comes to work and says, hey, I'd like you to move to Tampa. The, the millennial says, well, okay, that's, uh, let me go think about it and I'll go check. Yeah. Well, actually, the millennial will say this. He'll, they'll go one step further now. They'll say, why do I have to move anywhere? I can do this from here. That's true. Because we have seen as a consequence of the pandemic that you do not necessarily see a collapse of a business just because the people can't go into the office. And so that's sort of permeating their expectations. Let me give you one more thing because before I forget, because this is a huge difference between the Gen X and and millennials. Uh, Gen X feels that young millennial workers are very, they use this word all the time, needy. They're so needy. 
And I think that's a projection of them not being needy. You follow? Because a, a Gen Xer has always just figured it out. Nobody helped them with the laundry or homework or dinner. You know, they just did it. Yeah. And now you have this kid who is more interdependent. And now you view that from the lens of needy because we raise them in an interdependent fashion. Mm. So just it's just different. Yeah, I remember. It's like I learned to iron. It's different. When I was like eight. I yeah. remember I learned, you know, mow the lawn. Whereas my kids are like, what, what do you mean? Iron? What, what is that? I don't even know what that is. Oh. What you have just heard is the uh, preliminary rehearsal for our annual um, air and water show. And so... By the way, where are you, Chris, in the country? I'm in Chicago. And so Chicago, Illinois, and I live in Lincoln Park. And so... What happens uh, once a year on this weekend, the, um, the Air Force shows up and they fly over the city. And so today they're rehearsing. So I apologize for the strafing. It sounds like the movie trailer to Top Gun and I loved it. Uh, <laughs> it's, I, it's, it's exactly it's, like that. <laughs> okay, so, so the, the Gen Xers feel that the millennials are needy because they... That's how they interpret their interdependence, yes. And then what do the millennials think of the Gen Xers? Uh, a little aloof or remote. Remember now, um, they want, the, again, I think the millennials' methodology of connection is quite frankly, I'm gonna tell you all about myself. Okay. And inferred in that is you're gonna tell me about yourself. You see, remember now, the millennial, every day the parents come home with these children, as children, and you do this, I'll bet. What did you do today? And they tell you, yeah. they actually tell Sometimes, you, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you, and, and yeah, then they share the day with you and you share that. Well, that becomes the habit. And so now they're going forth with their own habit, which by the way, is not your habit. Your habit was never to share your day with people. It's none of their business. <laughs> <laughs> but, so, but so again, it's so funny how you, the pendulum goes from one generation to the next, one yes, generation exactly. to the next. So the generation Z kids grow up. And again, now we're talking about if you were born 1996 to 2012, I hear another Top Gun play Oops, coming. Here we go. Awesome. This is a great sound. No, I like. Did you mute? I had to mute you there. They were coming very close to the roof. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right, so now we're talking Generation Z. So this would be the kids of yes. those listening to the podcast. This is going to be the kids of the, those who are listening. These are kids that are, you know, let's call it you know, 15, well, 10 years old to 15, 10 to 15 years old, 10 to 20. No, no, no. Uh, Gen Z was born in 96. So they they would, the oldest would be 20, 25. And the youngest would be uh, 10. Okay. So age 10 to 25, probably a lot of kids of those who are listening to the Retire Sooner podcast. How did they grow up? What is their perspective of the world? Yeah, they grew up a different life again. I think they, they I call them echo exes, uh, just because I think they have a lot of those traits in the, um, in the sense that there's an economic decline relative to what they experienced. You know, this, this, a lot of them say the same thing. What event do you remember? When I talk to groups of young people, I ask them, what was a remembering event? What, what do you remember that sort of stayed with you? The Great Recession of 2008 or 10, whatever the dates they pick, which is interesting because they were children. And who as a child even knows the term recession? You follow? Yeah. So they were clearly aware of that. And so I think that they are children of scarcity in effect, and they are very concerned with their livelihoods, with being employable, and they are also private. They are very concerned about who they will demonstrate who they are. It's called the curated self. They, have, they are like their Gen X parents. Hold on. Okay, so... That makes sense in one way and another. I'm, I'm, I have a question: Is that if they're private, but isn't this the generation that's that's used social media the most? Oh no, they're very, but it's curated, which is interesting. Yes. They learn from the mistakes of the of the millennial. The millennial was putting every stupid thing they ever did on the internet, and they weren't filtering it. You see, and now that they realize, oh my God, that's going to stay on the internet forever, right? These kids noticed that, and so. Their stupidity is probably more, I will say, deliberate in what they're trying to accomplish as opposed to random and happening to them. So they learned from the millennials that the millennials were sharers. They were sharers, correct? Yes, yes. 
And they were naive users of the internet. That's right. They were new. And the Gen Z learned from that and realized that they need to curate what they were going to put out there to the world. Yes. And they're very interesting. The other thing they're doing, whereas the millennial is looking for purpose in life, they look for their purpose, which I think is we should all be looking for purpose. I'm okay with that. But Gen Z has gone a step further. What they're doing is they call it this side hustle thing. This side hustle is not just a, a purpose-driven thing. It's an economics thing. And so what they're doing is they're trying to create a revenue stream for themselves on the side that they may turn into a full-blown business, which is interesting. They're monetizing their interests. Is it because they were children of scarcity? I think that's part of it. I also think it's attached to fame. I think that people want to be an influencer and there's an attraction to that elevation of self in the media because they do have a greater fixation with the visual forms. TikTok is surmounting YouTube in terms of its attraction and YouTube is very popular. So these are visual arenas and they want to be seen. So I think they're going to leverage that more. I think Gen Z is the digital native and millennials are digitally fluent. Millennials are digitally fluent. Gen Z just, that, that, that's what they did. They, they live grew it. up. They, they live grew it. up with an iPhone for the most part. Absolutely. They grew up on an iPad. This idea of a virtual workplace will be perfected as a consequence of Gen Z, not as a consequence of we Gen Xers or boomers or millennials saying, well, how do we make this more user-friendly? I think they'll, they're, they're the ones who are going to uh, solve that. I think everyone has gone through how someone from another generation treats them. Maybe it's a parent or a grandparent, and we've questioned them the decisions and the motivations of, of a loved one because it's just they're coming from a different place. How do you help our listeners understand how we, whether we either reinterpret these different values from these different groups, or is it just around understanding, or do, what is the conflict well, the, we see in the, amongst these generations? I think it's interesting because it varies by who, who's saying it. What, and this is the, the essence of the title of the book is that, why I find you irritating. What is it about this person across from you that is irritating you? You have to first name it. You name it. And then the next thing I, I always say to people is, okay, imagine this person who is doing something irritating to you is a rational human being. So why don't we give them the benefit of the doubt and say, why might a rational human being do something that I would not do that way? And then I would go further and I'd say, what are you doing here? Uh, help me understand that. Because I, I think what we do is we don't enter into dialogue to try to understand their difference. What we do is we go down the hall to somebody who always agrees with us anyway. Hey, can and you th believe that? <laughs> exactly. And then we, we close the door, of course. And then we say, well, aren't they idiots? Yeah, they are. But we don't explore, which is interesting. Because in the home, we think our children are who are very different from us are wonderful human beings. But if those same children worked for us and they weren't our children, meaning if they were somebody else's children, we'd see them through the lens of our younger selves and saying, why are they acting that way? I would never do that. Do you follow? Hmm. Yeah. We well, tell me that again. So we interpret our children one way. Right. But then when we come to the office, we look at our work colleagues somewhat differently? Or what? Yes, you don't, see, that again? you don't see those people at the office as who your children are meaning who your children, you see them as who you were at that age. And you expect them to behave oh, as you behave so at that age in this office. And, but you don't expect your children to behave as you behaved when you were that age. You've given them a, yeah. a totally different, uh, more slack, uh, more engagement. You, you see what I'm saying? You, yeah. And so we are very different. This is what's confusing to the young. It's a little incongruent. They come into the office as they are, and then we tell them when they get there, that's not how you should be. <laughs> so one thing, I, I, you're right. I don't know if we do. I definitely am not great about this, but I think that the thought around it, when somebody in the workplace, to some extent, get, has this thought around, or, or you get, whether it's irritated or you say, when I was you know, 25, this is what I would have done. You're right. I think it is interesting to to try to put yourself in the generation's shoes. Do we do we talk to them a, a slightly differently? What that's interesting to me. How, how would we approach that? 
Well, what we tend to do in the, in the world of work, and this is just normative for work, is we are more tellers than askers. So we tend to tell more. And here's what you got to do. Here's my advice to you. Here's what I would do in your situation. You see, we tell, 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 tell. Now, this is, uh, there was a book written on this called The Advice Trap. And the problem is when you have expertise in something, you think you have expertise in all things, and therefore you share that expertise in a way that, that negates who the other person may or may be able to take in. So the better way to do this is be Socratic. Ask them questions. You do this at home all the time. You're, I'll tell you, your children are the best negotiators ever because you ask them a lot of questions. Yeah, we do. <laughs> you ask them. So you think that's a good idea? Why is it you think that's a good idea? What, what could you do differently? Well, what will happen if you did it that way? You see what you do? You, you educate through your questions, your children at home, but you don't take the time because it's efficient to just tell them at work. And I'm just saying, have the have a dialogue. You ultimately own the decision, so you will win ultimately. But I would rather win through commitment than win through compliance. The Socratic method to understand a generation more. Yes. I like that. And I see how that can work. Uh, let's talk about money. You know, we're a financial industry. So I was thinking to some extent you you spoke to financial the financial industry more than others, but is it multiple industries and corporations that that you speak with? Yeah, that's correct. Most of the people that find me are our knowledge worker industry. So I work a lot in professional services, financial services. The reason I'm, a, I'm attractive to them because you hire a lot of young people at a very high price point. Yes. And, and when you have that price point, you want to make sure that this is the right investment. So it behooves you to make sure that we sort of get them engaged earlier rather than later because of the investment we're making in them. So those are the people who come to me first. So let's talk about money for a second. How are the boomers doing? Again, this is a group that I work with probably the most. These are folks that are born in the, you know, the 50s and the 60s. And you know, maybe my perspective is these are people that we're working with have typically saved a bunch of money and they have done really well financially relative to a lot of the country. How would you generalize the boomer generation when it comes to a money perspective? They're in retirement today. They enjoying retirement. What are they looking for? Are they, how do they think about money? How are the boomers doing? Well, it's a complex question because there's two kinds of boomers in my mind. There were the ones who worked on the company as it's sort of the company model and they're glad to be retired because it really wasn't where they were fully engaged, but they were engaged enough in the habit of what they did. They made the progression, they paid their dues, and now they're enjoying the, the life they're leading. Then there's another huge cadre of us that are still working that are, I will call the knowledge worker or the superordinate worker, are the people that can still continue to make a, a contribution who enjoy work because they so clearly identified with working. In fact, these are the people that have the pseudo retirement. That is the one who say, oh yeah, I'm going to retire. And then you say, what are you going to do? Well, I'll probably go on a vacation or fish, you know, something for two weeks. But what are you going to do after that? Oh, I don't know. I haven't thought of that. And so the point being is they are so, so, they are so strongly identified with the work that they do that they will continue to work. And so that's the tough crowd. That, that's a crowd that it will always want to, their contribution is defined by that. This is why it's hard to have succession planning with boomers. We don't like that conversation. It's like planning for my funeral. Why would I do that? Mm -hmm. And so in this sense, what the, the, the participation is still key in who, who they are. So I, I, I like us to think of ourselves as, as next acts, saying, okay, what skills do I have? And where else might I bring value and give something back? Yeah, one of my favorite books this year, it's not a new book, but it's called Second Act Careers. Because I do have a lot of these folks. I, I really like this idea that you've got two kinds of boomers. You got the company people that really, and I think of this as like, not to pick on AT&T, but Bell South was a big brand here. A lot of people, Bell South, now AT&T, through all these telephone mergers. And you get to a company that's got you know, hundreds of thousands of employees. It's really hard to find purpose and meaning yes. for a lot of these people. But they stay, they stay, and they're like, okay, I got to get out of here, right? Yes, exactly. And then, so you've got that part of, and they, they weren't necessarily fulfilled or fully engaged. And then you've got the other set of boomers that are defined by their work, and they want to just keep going forever. And I guess for the folks that are in that camp, 
that's to some extent a second act, but maybe we encourage, and I would encourage our listeners if you're in that first camp, and I see a lot of folks here that, right, they were grinding in Atlanta traffic an hour each way, and they stayed for five years longer than they really wanted to stay. Those are the folks that more than anybody might need or want a second act that it's in a slightly different or maybe a very different vein from a work perspective. That's absolutely correct. In fact, what they undersell themselves on is they have a whole suite of skills that non-for-profits would, would love to have. But I think sometimes they, they define themselves too narrowly. They don't, they, they don't apply themselves across uh, uh, what, where else can I do this? Where else can I do this? Uh, and because they were part of the company man experience, I, you know, they might not see themselves in that role because they are role focused as opposed to how can I job craft? And job craft is what can I do to create a unique situation that I can use all of my gifts in a place that I'm giving back? You see, that, that gives them more freedom. When you are a company man, as it were, you just do what they tell you to do and not create what you want to be. Uh, now, and I'm, I'm uh, clearly, I know I'm generalizing, so I don't want to get any calls from anybody to say, oh, you know, I was able to be creative. That's true. But the same time is I do think there's an opportunity to give back because there are unused skills here. How about, and, and to some extent, I think about the boomers and they really have had really for the, for the last 30, 40 years, the United States has had a, has had such economic prosperity. So do you look at this as a as a relatively wealthy group? Uh, which group are we talking about? We're talking about boomers still. Is it really just a small segment of boomers? Yeah, I'd have to look at the numbers on that because I didn't. I don't pay. I I, I stay to the middle class. Uh, I do know that we have the the largest amount of money in terms of a generation that will be transferred at some point in time. Now the question becomes: To whom will we transfer it? Right. So what generation do we like the most? Do we like our, do the boomers give money down to their kids or their grandkids? (laughs) You know, and there is this great wealth transfer. Exactly right. And I am, I'm inclined to believe, I just read something about this recently, that they might be inclined to give it to Gen Z. They might be inclined to help their grandchildren uh, as opposed to uh, their own children, meaning that I'm not saying that they will deny their own children. I am saying their own children, they'll feel, well, you're established enough. You know who really needs the help? And so in that sense, I think they might, they won't deny, but maybe they'll give more than they would have given originally. Because I do think as a country, I'll tell you one of my biggest fears is we're bifurcating the, the, the young population into the haves and the have-nots. We are not mingling uh, mm. across. And the, the kids that have all the resources are almost guaranteed to move up. The kids that don't are almost guaranteed at the bottom rung to stay at the bottom. The, the, it's, go, it's much harder to move up. Well, arch, arch. and this is, I guess, this is the financial challenge that Gen Z faces, yes. is what you're saying, where you've got some that are really kind of, t- you're saying it's bifurcated. You've got one group that is guaranteed to do well, and then another group, which is probably a pretty large group, yes. or... That, that's going to struggle. Yes, exactly right. And what, what's going to happen so is- So that's the dynamic of Gen Z. Well, what, I think what they're going to have to come to grips with is the, the Gini coefficient is going to get worse before it gets better. And so more of this wealth is going to be accumulated at the top rather than the bottom. Now, I do think there's a counter movement going on. Oh, explain the Gini coefficient to our listeners. Though. A Gini coefficient is the closer to zero we are, from zero to one, the closer to zero we are, the more egalitarian we are in terms of our resource distribution. So if you are a 0.01, wow, amazing. But the closer to one you are, the greater the, the accumulation is to one person, to one person. And we're moving up, we're moving up, we're, we're higher, we're closer to halfway now, which is not where we wanna be. And I don't have the number in front of me, but if you look it up, it, we're moving in the, in the bad direction. So the Gini coefficient in the United States has continued to climb where more and more wealth is concentrated in fewer and fewer people. Yes. And that's the, now here's, but again, that's where there is one um, thing that's happening. And, and, and one of the things that's happening is the amount of work and effort it takes to be one of these superordinate workers is only getting larger. So for instance, think of it this way. Back in the 60s, a partner at a law firm was expected to put in 1,200 hours a year. That was today, 
if you hire a young lawyer at a, one of these good firms or a big firm, the ex expectation to start is 2,500 hours. That's the expectation to start, not as a partner. So when you keep adding on these hours, so yes, I thought we worked harder. I, I thought we worked harder, quote, back in the day. You're saying today we're expecting even more and having to work even harder than we used it, to? When you want to get to the higher rungs of things, you will have to put in more time to do so because the competition is going to be is greater and greater for, again, if you have less distribution of the resource, you're going to have more competition for the slots that have it available. Okay, so that makes sense. What about Generation Alpha? What do you think? Oh, that, that's what's in yeah. store for them? The, you know what? I, I don't know what the answer. I'll tell you what's frightening for me in that poor, this generation is because of the um, preponderance of school violence and, and the ways we're going about trying to solve it uh, by having police in the schools, uh, teachers, uh, you know, the suggestion armed with guns, uh, recently having bulletproof backpacks. When you have all of these sort of suggestions around security and you're a small child, what you've done is you've, you've put the child under the illusion that a police state, because that's what the school becomes, seems to be a safe place to be. Mm. And I'm not sure if that's the message we want to send. Mm. That's a tough one to solve, isn't it? That's a really tough one to solve. Yes, it's very tough because we want to protect them, but we don't want to protect them in a way that covets uh, extreme measures of security to do so. We are a free country after all. That's a tough, I, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not That's the tough king one. of answers on that. I think it's a good answer. It is because it does come back to your overarching point here is that our beliefs, our values are formed in that, in those early years. You know, what we see yes. as little kids, yes. wow, this happened to mom and dad, or this is mom and dad are struggling or mom and dad are doing really well with the economy. It's, it's interesting. I'd like us to reinstitute civics classes and things that, that, that honor the nation and honor the people in the nation that, that bring us across civility, civility classes, things that remind us that we are, we are necessary to each other. You know, I, we didn't go there, but I guess my question to you is, you know, the populism has risen around the world. It's not just the United States. It's in Europe. It's in mm -hmm, yes. multiple countries across the globe. Why is it? Why are we more divided today, Chris, than ever? Well, again, we, uh, you know, I could explain this in at least one term is when money is such that we are able to accumulate more and more and there is no mechanism that redistributes that money, then in fact, everyone is going to play to the game of accumulating more and more. So the Great Compression was a consequence of compressing everybody to the middle. And that meant that you taxed at the higher rate at the high end that redistributed to the middle, and then you paid people wages and such that allowed them to arise to the middle. The key of success in any society is the greatest number of people in the middle is the greatest guarantee of a society that will, that will be collaborative and cohesive. If you do not have a middle, you do not have cohesion. Hence, the Gini coefficient going to one, that's when you're going to continue to get populism. It's exactly right. It's exactly right. And you will have that because the top 1% in this nation probably has as much wealth accumulated as the bottom 50% of the yeah, nation. Yeah. So that's, that's a problem. That, that's part of it. That's part of it. For the bottom 50%, not for the top. Percent. Yeah, it's not a problem for the top 1%. Well, so we go back as we wrap just your book. When did you figure out to write this? Have you been working on it for many years? Just uh, give us an overview of yeah. why we want to own why the book, which has the greatest title I've heard in a long time, Why I Find You Irritating. Sounds like well, something that like you'd be like an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah, it does have that feel to it. And there's, by the way, I try to, I'm a lot funnier in person. Let me just say that on an interview, but, uh, but the book has some humor embedded in it. But the whole point of this was I, about 18 years ago, I noticed behavioral differences in young people coming into the workplace because I ran these schools for new consultants often. And so I started doing homework. This book is the compilation of about, I've, re I've read about 60 of these books in terms of generations or parenting, uh, societal shifts, all of those things. And I thought, well, why don't I put something together that, that, that hasn't been addressed? I tried to find the niche. And in my explanations, I go into these notions of generalizing why we do it, stereotyping dangers, all of the things around the mistakes we make about this, because I don't believe 
we are these little silos. I believe we have these attitudes that people pick up on and then explain and try to explain everybody falls under that particular attitude. And I try to dispel some of that. I also, in the second half of the book, I try to talk about what do you want to do? How do we do a better job of feedback, of mentoring, of teaming, and this point about lopsidedness? So I'm about embracing our differences to collective advantage and accommodating them as best we can, as opposed to trying to make them be us. I like this. I, I think of it really as kind of the next step in specialization. Next step of specialization, yes. which to me is a concept that's one of the most powerful. It makes America what it is. It makes a modern economy what it is. It's the specialization of labor. Yes. And you're a thought leader on specialization of bringing different generations together because it's the collective that makes for a great team. It's the, it's the football team where somebody's blocking somebody's catching, somebody's throwing very different roles here in the United States to be able to make a world-class team that's hard to do. And it's the key to success for businesses. I'm in complete agreement with what you're saying about all of this because uh, that, that's the key. And again, the world is complex and there's, there, there is, there's no great man model anymore. The great man was, was uh, available when we knew less and somebody had to sort of um, I, I will call it, they'll be the great coordinator model. That'll probably be the model of the future. In fact, there are jobs we haven't even invented yet. This is what's great about being Gen Z. Probably 60% of the jobs they have aren't even in existence. That concept of there's no longer a great man, but, but the evolution of that is a great coordinator. And that is, I think that is so true. And I think that's what also about, le that's why leadership and it's so important to learn. I always thought of leadership and business as either have it or you don't. And I've, I've learned, I think over mm. the last decade that it is very much something you get better at because it really is, it is about being a great coordinator is in my opinion is, is being a great leader is understanding all the pieces of the puzzle. How do we get people to collectively make an amazing team? And there's so much to that. It's actually a very fun part of business. Probably it's one of the most fun things about business is to be able to do that. So. And I think you're helping us do that. Well, I hope so. I hope so, Wes. <laughs> I, I think you are, man. I can go all on on that topic as well, because I love the topic of leadership as well, because we're, we're, we have to move off of the, that older model and move into much one more that is sort of inclusive and leverages each of our unique contributions. Well, um, and remove the ego. Well, in, in, uh, and which I think the modern day workplace does that to some extent, but it's not every business and not every industry is doing that. Yeah, I think one of the challenges with this is that we still, we still adhere to the, the great man. First of all, one of the reasons we adhere to it is because we pay them so much. Remember in the 70s, the, the difference between the top and the, and, the, and the top and the bottom of a workplace in GM was about 16. That means the top management was making 16 to 19 times as much as the bottom. Today, it goes over 220 times. So when you have somebody who's making that much money, a differential, you then also have to have the excuse that they're doing so much more, so they must be great. You see what I'm saying? What we do is when we, when we create the entity of greatness because of the, the, the resources that we allocate to that, the assumption is these other people aren't making as much contributions, therefore they won't contribute as much or do as much. And so, so it's an illusion. We all bring something to the table. Now, again, this is going a little off script here, but that's, that's a very interesting concept. This one, this, it used to be one, 16, the CEO is making 16 times the line worker. Today, they're making 220, 220 times. In your opinion, why is that? Well, it's part of it is collusion. Uh, they are colluding. Who, who do they put on their board? They put other CEOs who do what they do. And so who pays the pay packages? The board pays the pay packages. So, And then when you have Wall Street, of course, saying, okay, short term, well, let's give them options or something. So what you do is you create these pay packages that allow them to, to manipulate profits for the quarter. I hate to say manipulate because that's really a cruel thing to say, but to say- we Incentivize, incentivize. Incentivize, yeah. thank you, incentivize. And so that, that enhances the way to make money as well. And the other thing is the tenure of a CEO is typically very short. They get rid of them quickly. So their, their window of time is maybe five years. So they're going to try to make as much in that window of time and it becomes a club within a club. So yeah. we then move CEOs around. And so you have all of those factors that contribute to this and nobody's pushing back enough. 
Well, uh, Chris DeSantis, you are, and uh, it's ironically, I don't find you irritating, but I love the title of your book, <laughs> Why Why I Find You Irritating, uh, that people could find on your website, of course. Where do people find you and where do people find the book? Well, I'm at uh, cpdesantis.com. Uh, you can do that. Actually, I have a, a podcast now with my friend Mary Abijay. Uh, it's a little advice, 30 minutes, and we answer any question you want. We actually take three questions a week. It's called Cubicle Confidential. It's a little That's lighthearted. Cool. I'm, okay. I'm, yeah, it's kind of fun. And then uh, the book is available on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Books A Million websites. It's, it's out there. Well, good. Well, listen, keep up the great work for demographics. I guess you be- you're back speaking, right? The world's back. You're speaking. Oh, yes. Yeah, yes. We'd, we'd love to have you back at some point, too. I liked your, as I said, you, you have a way with uh, your crowd, by the way, you have a great presence in front of people and they like you. So that really makes it easy for me to follow. <laughs> well, good. Well, listen, thank you, my friend. Thank you. Hey, y'all, this is Mallory with the Retire Sooner team. Please be sure to rate and subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend. If you have any questions, you can find us at westmoss.com. That's W-E-S-M-O-S-S.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and YouTube. You'll find us under the handle Retire Sooner Podcast. And now for our show's disclosure. This podcast is provided to you as a resource for informational purposes only and is not to be viewed as investment advice or recommendations. This information is being presented without consideration of the investment objectives, risk tolerance, or financial circumstances of any specific investor and might not be suitable for all investors. It is not intended to and should not form a primary basis for any investment decision that you may make. Always consult your own legal, tax, or investment advisor before making any investment or financial planning considerations. Please refer to the full disclosure in the podcast description for any additional information information.